I have wrestled with Psalm 76 this week, and I feel pretty beaten up. Um, It won, I think. But I'll explain why it's been so hard in about 15 minutes. We thought in this series so far, this singing with Asaph, what can miserable Christians sing? And we've kind of dealt with some of that. Tonight the question is, what do triumphant Christians sing? Now singing on the back of triumph is pretty normal. So we've had the Commonwealth Games, and so you, you sing 500 miles and you do all that bit. But then there's even that official bit where if you've won, you stand on the podium and you sing your national anthem. And people tend to sing with you. But um, as you, you know, you're singing and you're singing in triumph that you've thrown something further than someone else or you've got somewhere quicker. And as, if you're Scottish at the Commonwealth Games, you're singing not only about your victory, but you get to sing about beating up the English. So you get to sing the line that says, Proud Edward's army sent him homeward to think again. We're singing this kind of that double triumph as you sing as a Scot, having just won a gold medal at the Commonwealth Games. It can be organized, it can just be more spontaneous. So a football game and you sing 5-1, we only won 5-1. There is this natural singing that comes off the back of triumph. And so too, in Psalm 76, God people sing off the back of a great triumph. The, the context is probably 2 Kings 18 and 19. If you've got a Bible, probably worth flicking there. It may not be this, this is the exclusive context of this song of triumph, but it seems to read well as the background. What you have in 2 Kings 18 is Assyria and their king, Sennacherib. And Sennacherib comes to Israel and his, his nation surrounds Judah and Jerusalem and he taunts them. And he says things like 2 Kings 18 verse 33, has any God of any nation ever delivered his land from the king of Assyria? And then again, 2 Kings 19 verse 11, surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. So here's the taunt from Assyria and from King Sennacherib. Okay, Jerusalem, you are surrounded. Every nation around you has been subdued. All of their gods are smashed. And therefore, the rhetorical question comes, you'll surrender, right? The taunt comes. And he even says, arrogantly, choose life rather than death. Right? If, you, if you choose to be stubborn, you're going to die. So why not just submit that you might live? But Isaiah, God's prophet, comes to God's people. And in the face of the taunt, he brings God's promise. Have a look at 2 Kings 19, verse 32. Isaiah says, He, that is the king of Assyria, will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. And then skim down two verses. God promises in verse 34, I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David's, my servant. And so we keep reading. Verse 35, That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. 
Last or two weeks ago, Psalm 75 said, There is an appointed time, there is an upright judge where the arrogant will be brought down and the afflicted will be lifted up. Here in Psalm 76 is an occasion where God does exactly that. Spurgeon helpfully says, Faith in the 75th Psalm sung of victories to come. And here in the 76th, it sings of triumphs already achieved. Judah went to bed trembling. They woke up triumphant. All they had done was snored. And yet God had victored, triumphed on their behalf. And so that is the likely setting of this song of Asaph in Psalm 76. That is the likely setting. Here is the resulting song. And as we work through it, you'll see, as Martin helpfully said, its focus is exclusively on the object of our worship. It is on the obsession of who God is and what he's done for his people. So let me show you four things that they triumph in, that they sing of. Four quick things. Firstly then, the lion in his lair, verses 1 to 3. Now we've seen already in the Asaph Psalms that he has a preoccupation with God's presence with his people. God is present in his place with his people. So Psalm 73, it is good for me to be near God. Psalm 74, it's this agony of the felt absence of God. And then Psalm 75, two weeks ago, God's name is near. And so too in this psalm, in verses 1 and 2, four names describing one place that all emphasize the presence of God in Judah, in Israel, in Salem, and in Zion. God is present in his place with his people. Now that is not to say that he is nowhere else, but that this is the one place where he can be known. It's where he's chosen to dwell, to put himself on display. The tagline is, you can't get this anywhere else. If you want to know God's name, if you want to know him at all, if you want to enter his tent, find his dwelling place, where do you go? Judah, Israel, Salem, Zion. Now, why do I say the lion in his lair? There's not a lot of lion imagery in those first three verses. Well, in the original Hebrew language, God is being likened to a lion here. Verse 2, we get this language of tent. That is used elsewhere in the Bible as lair. The word dwelling in verse 2 is used in Psalm 104 as referring to a den of lions. Asaph's Descendants are clearly putting God on display as the lion in his lair who is ferocious for his people. They sing a song of triumph about the God who has been like a crouching lion who has devoured their enemies. Here's the thrill for God's people. They find themselves in the den, not as his prey to be devoured, but as his pack to be protected. God, ferocious for his people. And verse 3, that is exactly what he does. Every weapon, whether defensive or offensive, is broken to smithereens. Hear the song of triumph? This lion triumphing on behalf of his people. Secondly, the warrior 
before whom all are still, verses 4 to 7a. Now in those taunts that we read from Sennacherib, this king compared Judah's God to all the other gods of the nations that they subdued that now lay strewn on the floor. But actually that comparison by Sennacherib is now laughable. It is him and his army who are now idol-like. Have a look in verse 5. They sleep. Verse 5 again. They cannot lift their hands. Verse 6. They lie still. Who's comparable to an idol? Not the God of Judah, but the very king who was taunting Judah. They lie completely still. Instead, God appears in verse 4, resplendent and majestic. Slightly weird language. More majestic than the mountains rich with game. It's not great for a Valentine's card. But I think the language is, as Judah was surrounded by their enemies, it was as if, as if there was prey ready to devour them. And yet God has been the one more majestic than mountains full of their enemies. He is resplendent and incomparably majestic. And did God's people fight? No. They were sleeping. All Hezekiah did, the king of Judah, was pray. And did God engage in hand-to-hand combat? No. How did he achieve this victory? Verse 6. At your rebuke. With a word. So, end of or start of verse 7. Judah, why would you fear Sennacherib? Why would you fear his god, Nishroch? No, you fear this god. And you fear him alone. The warrior before whom all are still. Thirdly then. Not only the lion and the warrior, but again, the focus of their worship is the object, God, who is now the judge, who is to be feared. In the psalm thus far, all the action has been localized and defensive. So God has been in Jerusalem and he has been protecting his people. In 7b and onwards, the psalm goes cosmic and God goes on the offensive. He's no longer a lion that is entrenched within his lair, but he is the God of the universe who speaks from heaven. Two questions. Question one, is there any who can stand before him when he is angry? Verse seven, no. Question two, is there any defense, excuse, or argument before his judgment seat? Verse eight, no. The land feared and was quiet. He's not only the warrior who raises his voice, but he is the judge who rises for judgment. Now, notice the reason why he judges in verse 9. Why does God rise for the sake of judgment? Verse 9b, to save all the afflicted of the land. God has a special eye for the downtrodden, for the oppressed, and for the despised. That is, his anger is raised by those who afflict them, and his judgment is for the purpose of saving them. 
Here is a pattern which will run all the way through the pages of the Bible. It is salvation through judgment. Judgment by the means and for the sake of salvation. God says to his people, listen, they don't fear you and they do not fear your God. But actually they will. I will save you not just by removing you from among them, but removing them forever. Salvation through judgment. The judge who is and who will be feared by all men. Fourthly, not only the lion, the warrior, the judge, but resultingly the God of global praise. Verse 10, Surely your wrath against men brings you praise. Now for some, thoughts of God's wrath are abhorrent. I cannot conceive, I cannot worship a God who could be angry, who could be wrathful. But for the psalmist, God's wrath is a reason for praise. See, he's not indifferent to the plight and suffering of his people, but in this wrathful judgment, he demonstrates his justice. Wrath brings praise. God can take even the rampant taunts of Sennacherib to rebound to the resounding praise of his own name. Surely your wrath against men brings you praise. And so do you see the right response? At the end of this psalm, God's people fulfill your vows. That is to say, his righteousness will not overlook your unfaithfulness, and a fear of him is not demonstrated by hypocrisy, but by integrity. Don't just make vows with your lips and then ignore them with the rest of your life, but make sure that you're fulfilling in your life the vows that fall from your lips. And then the nations fear God and give him praise. He may not be the God of your nation, but he is the God of heaven. He may not be your God, but you are answerable to him as the God of heaven. And this is amazing. At the end of this psalm of triumph over the nations, God gives an invitation to the nations. Actually, you can come and enter into the triumph of this lion warrior judge. Your God was smashed to pieces by the God of Assyria. Our God triumphed over the king of Assyria with a word. And yet he invites you to come in, to share in his triumph. And so Judah sing this song, and rejoicing not in their own strength, not in their own victory, but in the fact that the the lion-like warrior judge has done this for his people while they sleep, And so they praise his name. Now that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? As a Sam. Why have I found this so hard this week? Especially when the first commentator that I I read said, this is a strongly simple Sam. (laughs) Not just simple, strongly simple. But actually the, the toughness of studying this Sam this week, the complicating factor has been not the Sam's context, but our own current context. You see, the Sam 
delights in God as a roaring lion, triumphant as a divine warrior, rising to judge. God's people are saved and singing, and God's enemies are still in silence. And yet, I'd pause from looking at the psalm, and I'd look at the news, and the ISIS militants in Iraq are roaring like a lion. Their warriors are crucifying, beheading, and raping God's people and others. God's people lie still and silent, and God's enemies are singing. And you kind of think, can I sing this, Sam? This, this week, can I sing of God's triumph? And then I kind of found my heart asking God, God, why can't we sing this, Sam? Why haven't you risen like a lion from your lair? Why haven't you come as a warrior? Why haven't you come as the judge to save your afflicted people? Now, there's been loads of helpful blogs written by Christians across the world to help us think about this, to help us know how to pray. And one of them was written by a guy I really esteem and I value his wisdom and his preaching, but he writes this. Islam has a problem. Its leading prophet, who is held up as a model to imitate, was himself a warrior. The symbol of Christianity is the cross, the great symbol of suffering. Our Lord was not a warrior, but a suffering servant. Now that last line was the line that stood out. Our Lord was not a warrior, but a suffering servant. And I found myself saying, yes, yeah, true. So when the Lord Jesus came, he did not come to the royalty of a palace, but to the poverty of a stable. He came not with the pomp and the power of a military horse, but on the meekness and the humility of a lowly donkey. He did not come using politics and capital to establish an earthly kingdom, but he came through the means of sacrifice and servanthood all the way to the, the cross. And so you find yourself saying, yes, it's true. But, yes, and he is a warrior. The Lord Jesus came a warrior like, lion like, to confront sin and suffering and Satan. So we see him like a lion stepping into the wilderness to do battle with his enemy, the evil one. We see him like a lion crossing regions to confront demons. We see him like a lion going through the valley of the shadow of death to rescue Lazarus. We see him like a lion topple tables in the temple to honor his father's name. We see him rise like a lion to set his face resolutely towards Jerusalem to go to his cross. He is a warrior. But like the God in Psalm 76, how does he achieve his victory? Through a word with nothing but a rebuke. He comes to the grave of Lazarus, so he comes in the midst of the storm or to the demoniac with a word. He is a warrior. The question still came to me though, okay, but can we sing this psalm? Or is this a case of the kind of football ground taunt, you only sing when you're winning. Is that one of those songs? Actually, I think this psalm has much comfort for Christians in Iraq 
as it would of God's people on the aftermath of great triumph. Let me explain why. The Lord Jesus is the lion in his lair. In the Old Testament, it was that God's chosen place to reveal his character was in a place, the temple. But where is God finally, completely, perfectly put himself on display? It is in not a place, but a person, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That fourfold emphasis at the start of the psalm is equally placed in the New Testament upon the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know God? How do you find out the greatness of his name? Where does he dwell? Well, in the person of Jesus Christ. We read at the start of our service, John 4, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, maybe for Christians in Iraq, the temptation is to forsake Jesus and convert to Islam. But you see how this psalm speaks? You, you don't get this anywhere else. God cannot be known in the pages of the Quran or in the rituals of Islam. It is here and here alone. Salvation does not come from anywhere else, but it is from the Jews. It is in Jesus. Don't forsake don't fall away, but rejoice that this is where God is known. Not only is the Lord Jesus the lion in his lair, he is the warrior before whom one day all people will be still. Now, yes, he is a suffering servant. Yes, he goes to the cross to achieve salvation through judgment. The wrath of God hits him that he might save people who have been afflicted by their own sin. But we must ensure that we have a place in our understanding of who Jesus is as the divine warrior. Come with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6, verse 15. That's page 1238 in the church Bibles. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come. And who can stand? The Lord Jesus, the Lamb, who is the Lamb and the Lion, the Lamb who was slain yet standing, it is His wrath. It is His anger that all people in Revelation flee from, try and hide from and yet ultimately are consumed by. He is the warrior before whom all will be still. He too is the judge 
that all people will fear. He saves his people through the destruction of their enemies. If you've still got Revelation open, turn to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 2. The song of heaven is about God's true and just judgments. But then flick over to verse 11. John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And read this. With justice, he judges and makes war. He is the warrior who makes war. He is the judge who judges. The Lord Jesus said when he was on trial, in the future you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. You see, he is the just judge. We have in this psalm a little picture of the story of the whole Bible. Fiercely fought beginnings, but a sure and certain ending. That actually God's salvation and his judgment will spread over everything. And it is the Lord Jesus who is the lion, the place of revelation. It is the Lord Jesus who is the warrior, the Lord Jesus who is the judge. It's right that the church on earth is called the church militant. If you read theology books, you'll come across that phrase. We are the church that's in battle. It is equally right that the church in heaven is called the church triumphant. And what do triumphant Christians sing? Well, they sing things like Psalm 76. I think it's a song that we will sing in heaven. If you think of all the people in the Bible who suffered innocently, who suffered unjustly, I think Joseph could sing this psalm. I think Job could sing this psalm. Actually, I think our brothers and sisters in Iraq can sing this psalm even now. To say, you can sing now in faith what you will one day sing from experience. To sing confidently now, even in suffering, what one day you will sing when God puts an end to suffering. As we sing Psalm 76, it's almost it's like choir practice for heaven. When we will look back and say, actually, the Lord Jesus is the one who has removed everything that would afflict me. And now we know only triumph. And so what is the application of Psalm 76? Well, fulfill your vows. Now, if you're in Iraq right now, what does that mean? You say, Jesus is Lord, when you've got a knife over your head. But how can you do that? Because I know that this warrior is not the greatest warrior. And this person who is judging me is not the greatest judge. But there is one deserving of my praise who will triumph in the end. Fulfill your vow. What does that mean for you? It means that all the promises you've made to God need to be fulfilled. The promise to follow the promise to repent, the promise to love, the promise to give. They must not just be the praise of our lips, but the life 
of our hearts. He is a lion, which is great. He's ferocious for us, but he's still to be feared by us. You get these stupid documentaries sometimes about people who decide to live with lions or other ferocious animals. Stupid, stupid people. In the end, they normally suffer. But when you're living with a lion, there's a certain cautiousness to almost every step. And so too, when we realize that the Lord Jesus, he is the lion in his lair. He is the divine warrior. He is the just judge. We're not casual with our words. But actually, we, we guard our hearts. Fulfill your vows. What about if you're not a Christian here tonight? Maybe just wandered in, thought this was a festival event. Well, it's free. I wonder what you sing about. It's interesting, the Assyrian kings loved to sing in the kind of the aftermath of their achievements. One of the other things they used to do was create rooms in their kingdoms that testified to the great victories of battle. And so they've done excavations in Nineveh, where Sennacherib would have had his kind of palaces. And they found whole rooms, massive rooms, the walls lined with things that spoke of victories in battle. There's one that they've recently excavated about Lachish, another town that they completely wiped out. But you know, they've not found in all their excavations a room that testifies to the sacking of Jerusalem. Because it never happened. See, 2 Kings 18 and 19 is a historical event. Psalm 76 is not delighting in a fairy story, but in history. But you know the real tragedy of Sennacherib? His army are destroyed. He sees the triumph of the God of heaven. And do you know what he does? He goes home. He bows down before his idol. You think, what an idiot. You've seen the power of the Almighty God. And you bow down before this thing that you created with your own hands. But maybe you're not a Christian here tonight. And you see something of the triumph of God in Psalm 76. Maybe you see the triumph of God in the resurrection. Actually, where Jesus conquers death. Maybe the greatest thing that you fear. Don't pull a Sennacherib. Where you see the triumph of God and yet you go home and you sing about your career or your car or your house or your boyfriend or anything. Here's a God that is worthy to sing about. You know, you ought to fear him. And yet actually he sends an invitation. He says, come and join in the triumph of this Lord Jesus who can sing even in the face of death. don't know what you'll sing at your funeral. A Christian can sing Psalm 76, looking at the triumph of God over everything that would destroy them, saying that he alone is to be feared and he alone is to be praised. Let me pray.